It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. General Motors recently committed to selling only electric vehicles by the year 2035. It's a major transition for the company that poses unique manufacturing and market challenges. How many people own an electric vehicle in the crowd? How many people only own an electric vehicle? Just a couple of you. And to get 30, 40, 50% of the population uh, buying new vehicles, you've got to make sure that it is something that solves their every need. CEO Mary Barra has been leading GM for the last decade. She began working at the company as a college student in 1980 and held many roles before taking over the top position. Now she's responsible for guiding GM through an ambitious time of change. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Journalist Rebecca Blumenstein interviews Barra about getting to the top post of a major company and what she sees for GM's future. Here's Blumenstein. I want to just start at the beginning. You actually have worked at GM your entire life and then some because you you worked your way through college um, on the plant floor where you inspected, uh, I believe, hoods and fenders. Uh, You've helped pay your way through college by working at General Motors and went to college at Kettering Institute to be an engineer. How does that shape your view as a leader, uh, being someone who has literally never worked anywhere else other than GM? Well, I did work at Felice Quality Market, where quality is our middle name in high school. Okay. (laughs) I I was the snack bar person. But uh, no, important so, point. Yes, but uh, no. I've, I, since I was 18 years old, I've worked at General Motors, uh, and it, it did a, working uh, in the co-op program. It allowed me to to pay for college, and because my dad was a die maker at D- GM and had retired the year after our year before I started. So GM is a is rich um, has a rich history in my family. But uh, you know, I think understanding what it means to to work on an assembly line and understanding the hard work that you know all of our the men and women of our manufacturing team do. I think it's been a fundamental uh, benefit. And understanding how it works, you know, right from the line all the way up to all the other areas uh, in the business, it really helps you, especially when you're in transformation. So I consider it just um, one of the most important things I did was to, to have worked on the line and started there. Do you ever worry that it makes you a little too insular in thinking? I mean, we're always, as leaders, looking for the fresh thought. And if you've just been there so long, does that... Does that make you vulnerable to that? I think you have to make sure that you um, are constantly looking outside. I mean, I think, uh, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s, I think that was a big part of General Motors' issue. They were too insular. Uh, but, you know, I have made, uh, made sure it's actually a priority for me that we have a very diverse uh, leadership team, and not just diverse from, from you know, gender, race, but also from different experiences, different industries, uh, and different backgrounds. So I think that's what helps us... Uh, you know, make sure that we're not uh, just, you know, listening to ourselves. But frankly, you know, I think what's most important is we listen to the customer. And we try to drive that we don't win until the customer says we win. And that, that focus, I think, is the most important. You were promoted quickly along the way. You told me once a story of your first big promotion after graduating college, not really working that long as an engineer, and you were suddenly promoted to, to plant manager. And... Um, you remarked along the way that a lot of people helped you, particularly men who had worked uh, on the line. Yeah. It, Can you share I, that story? Absolutely. So um, I had started in, in the plant, and then actually when I hired in full-time, I worked as a controls engineer and then was a maintenance supervisor. And then 11 years passed in my career, and I had the opportunity to become the plant manager of Detroit Hamtramck, which is now what we call Factory Zero, where we're building um, uh, EV trucks, the Hummer uh, and the Silverado, as well as the Cruise Origin. And so when I got to the plant, I had been out of the plant for a long time, and I worked for uh, worked with, I should say, my assistant plant manager was this fabulous individual who'd worked his whole career in the plant. And he said to me, he said, Mary, first I'm going to teach you my job as the assistant plant manager, and then I'm going to teach you yours. And if I hadn't worked with someone who was willing to, you know, help me understand 
managing the plant at that level uh, with all much different than when I was a, a maintenance supervisor earlier in my career, I don't think I'd be where I am today. And it, I think it's just one example of people who, you know, I think if you, you work and you're honest about what you know and what you don't know and you respect every job because it takes every job at General Motors to do what we do, um, I, you know, I think that allows you to build those types of relationships where people want to help you and who doesn't like sharing and being proud of what they do. So that was a pretty pivotal, pivotal uh, assignment. And uh, again, I owe Steve Byrne a lot of uh, thanks. When did you decide you wanted to be CEO? My, my sense is that you didn't exactly follow a straight path and you actually said no to a couple of pivotal assignments along the way. Yeah, I, I made some decisions where I did say no, mainly because of my family and, and my parents. I have, my parents uh, are no longer with us and they were quite elderly and I knew if I moved away, I likely might not ever get to spend that time with them. I actually was right about that. Uh, so I have made decisions based on what I think is best for my family in the long term, but, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when you, when you look at, you know, your, your whole career and the assignments that you had, I, I frankly didn't think about CEO um, until I was literally told I was being considered. And I was like, oh, you know, it's one of those things like, okay, I mean, I was very senior at the time. I was actually running product development, which I think is one of the best jobs in General Motors. Think about it. You spend your days either at design, looking at new vehicles, at the Milford Proving Ground, driving our vehicles, and driving competitive vehicles, and it's it's you know really the energy of the company. But uh, you know when I was told I was being considered, of course I was interested. But it, it was a very short period of time from when I realized I was being considered till when I was in the job. So you started as CEO in 2014, a few years after GM experienced a near-death experience and had to be bailed out by taxpayers. What did you find? I mean, GM was, was at the time just famous for layers of bureaucracy. Well, you know, having been there, um, you know, I knew where we were at our best and I knew where we had challenges. And one of the, it was one of the things that when I got this position, I knew absolutely we had to make sure we had an aligned leadership team. And you think about it, if any company, if your top, you know, 12 to 15 people aren't aligned, running any business is hard enough, but you have to have that alignment. And I think when I look back to, you know, some of the struggles that General Motors had is because we didn't have that alignment and we didn't have the right accountability and empowerment. And so that's been something I've been working on, you know, even before I, I was in this role, because right as we came out of the restructuring, I was actually running uh, human resources and, you know, working on cultural issues and how do we really change the culture to drive more accountability. And so uh, that's been kind of something. And I, and I also believe you've got to engage people, you've got to engage their hearts and minds to really win you know, every single person is part of the company. And so that's, that's kind of how I believe any company can win and what I try to work on every day. So you're overseeing just seismic changes. You're literally phasing out internal combustion engines. As a leader, what's your philosophy? How do you not rest too much on tradition that's made GM excellent, but also just being a change agent? How do you balance that and, and resist the pressure to just kind of keep with things as they've been? I, you know, I, I think there's so much changing right now. I mean, I, and I believe we have the right strategy when people say what keeps me up at night is are we moving fast enough? And so I think when you're looking to move fast, when you can leverage technology in almost any part of the business, uh, you, you just have to keep driving that change. And one of the things people don't realize about General Motors, just because of our demographics, uh, about, uh, I would say, almost 40%, maybe higher, of our engineering, our technical talent has been with the company less than five years. And that's because of just normal attrition. And as we did that, we shifted from more of a hardware focus to a software focus. And you know that really gives you a lot of energy because this gen most of those uh, individuals who have joined the company are new college grads. And it's not like when I started at General Motors in you know 1980, as a student, I mean, I get emails, I probably get two to three emails a week from someone who's maybe been at the company one or two years and has an idea for me. I make sure I or the person who has expertise responds to each one of their ideas because good ideas can come from anywhere. But I think that uh, has really changed the company with a lot of new talent coming to the company at all levels, but especially at the entry level. And you just made a prominent hire from Apple, you were telling me backstage? Yes, yes. Yeah, we just hired um, Mike Abbott, who is, uh, just most recently was at, at Apple, and he is running, we put all the software together because software is so, you know, we really have to become a software first company uh, with what the vehicle can do. And so he's, uh, you know, just been here about a month now and is already driving really positive change. And I think that's an example too of, 
bringing people outside resources, especially in areas uh, and industries that maybe have done something before it's, it's become the cri mission critical in the automotive industry. So take us inside a little bit this uh, moment. I believe it was in 2021 when you just decided, I'm, making, I'm betting everything on electric getting rid of internal combustion. I, th I believe it was before a lot of the other aut American automakers did. And did you just feel that you needed to do something that dramatic to, to in a sense, catch up to Elon Musk and hold your own? Well, I think when we looked at um, what, what was happening in the industry, and one of the reasons we did that was primarily driven from internal, because at GM, we had said we believe in an all-electric future, but there was a lot of internal debate of when. And so when we looked at our plans and we looked at the regulatory environment and realized, you know, we thought the right thing to do was to get our entire portfolio from a light-duty perspective to be all-electric by 2035, uh, that was a big... Uh, you know, a big statement. But when we did it, we mainly did it because we needed to get everybody at, uh, internally in the company stop debating when and start working on how to make sure we get it done. And so it was a very important announcement because it stopped the debate. And uh, that's one of the reasons we did it. I think it, we're still the only full-line manufacturer that has made that commitment. None, none of our other, I'll say the traditionals or those, you know, obviously those that are started as an all-EV company don't need to do that. But we're still the only... Um, full-line manufacturer with all our brands that have made that commitment. So the rap against Elon Musk for a while was that he couldn't produce at volume. And last year, you produced 39,000 electric vehicles, if my figures are correct, and he produced 1.4 million. What's taking so long? It's, it seems like you're, those numbers would have been higher for you by now. Yeah, I would say one of the things when in the 1819 timeframe, because we had already done the Volt um, and then the Bolt, and, and the Bolt, the Chevrolet Bolt um, is, a, is our second generation, but it was an internal combustion engine vehicle that was modified to become electric. And when you do that, you have to make a lot of trade-offs uh, with range, with performance, because the vehicle wasn't designed to have a foundation of, of a battery pack. And so in the 18 timeframe, we said, if we really want to convert and believe we're going to be an all-EV company, we've got to do a dedicated platform. And so that we started working on an 18. We launched uh, in late 21, December, I think it was like probably one of the last days in December of 21, um, the, the first vehicle off the Ultium platform, which was the Hummer. And so now we've been ramping that up. What's held us uh, off right now is getting our battery plants running. We have a battery plant that is now running really well in Ohio. We have another one in construction in Spring Hill, Tennessee. We have a third in Michigan. And then we just announced about a week ago that our fourth will be in uh, Indiana. And so getting those cells ramped up and actually uh, that, that is constraining our Ultium platform uh, vehicles, which is all of our, our future vehicles like the Silverado EV, both the Hummer truck and Hummer SUV, uh, the Equinox EV and the uh, Blazer EV that come out this year, the Cadillac Lyric. We're, we're ramping and you know, we're, we're, we have some growing pains because it's not only once you make the battery cell, then you've got to put it in modules and you've got to make the pack for a car. It's all new manufacturing. We're working with different suppliers. You know, there, I'd say there's suppliers right now that I have more people in than they probably they do to get them up and running. But, uh, you know, as we break the roadblocks and learn, uh, you know, we'll, we feel we're on track for what we've said we'd achieve this year on our way to 400,000 units by the middle of next year and a million in 20 in 25. So do you think you'll be catching up to Elon soon and then vis-a-vis -vis Ford and the Chinese are coming? I, I, do you still... Do you still think that you're going to be able to maintain a leadership role? I definitely, you know, we sell more vehicles in the United States than anyone else. Uh, we have done that for years. Well, you know, I think decades aside from one blip uh, during the semiconductor shortage. Uh, and we have the highest customer loyalty across all of our brands. Just last week, as a manufacturer, we have the highest quality. And we know customers. If you think about it, I'm sure many of you own electric vehicles today. But I, I, and I ask, how many people own an electric vehicle in the crowd? How many people only own an electric vehicle? Just a couple of you. And to get 30, 40, 50% of the population uh, buying new vehicles, you've got to make sure that it is something that solves their every need. And you're, you're reaching customers who, you know, the average price they spend on a new car is between 30 and $35,000. It's their only vehicle. If there's two cars in the household, 
they need both of them to go to work, and uh, you know they need to know they're going to have a reliable charging, that they're going to have reliable service, and so you know we're working hard to build that. But those customers we know really well, and so when you think about EVs, you know I think um, last year less than 10% penetration. You know, quickly, we, we have made the commitment to be at 50% by 20, uh, 2030. You've got to reach those customers. And I think our brand strength, our loyalty, the loyalty and the quality that we have, uh, we're on track to do it. And also, we're going to have a portfolio of vehicles. We're not replicating our internal combustion engine portfolio, but we're really being strategic about having affordable vehicles, having luxury vehicles, we have a truck franchise right now. We sell more trucks in this country than anyone else, making sure we maintain that with the Silverado EV, the Hummer, as well as the GMC Sierra EV. So, you know, with the vehicles we have now, with what we'll have a year from right now, it will be dramatically different. Okay, so you've set me up. I am a Bolt driver, and you're, you're discontinuing the Bolt. Um, and a lot of people care. Swisher drives the Bolt. There's been some, a lot of buzz about the Bolt, and it feels like you're there, and then, well, getting some fans, and so, then you're making a big change. You know, I think there, you're absolutely right. There's tremendous equity and loyalty to, to the Chevrolet Bolt EV, and it is built off of our, today, off of our second-generation technology, but um, it's a very important vehicle in our, in our portfolio. So, um, you know, people have to wait and see what we end up doing. Perhaps a hint of things to come. Okay, you mentioned chargers. There was obviously a seismic uh, announcement a couple of weeks ago. Ford said that it was at a mid... Uh, an agreement with Elon Musk to go with uh, the, the Tesla charger, and then you followed. How much of that decision was um, predicated on Ford, and, and how difficult is it for you to do that with a competitor? Like, Musk is someone who you've just competed viciously against uh, for, for I years. I would say viciously. I would say aggressively. <laughs> I don't think of myself as a vicious person. <laughs> but, um, you yeah, know, it's, it's, really, it's a really great point. So, you know, we had been having conversations. I think one of the big things, we wanted to make sure uh, that our customers would, would still, uh, you know, we, we have aggregated uh, many different charging companies uh, into the My Chevy app or the My Cadillac app, the My GMC app. And we wanted, we didn't want to lose that relationship because think about how often you need, need to charge. And so I think one of the breakthroughs was, you know, they agreed it, you know, they would provide the information that it go through yours and also that we get the same cost for our customers that Tesla customers do. And so as we saw that, that change occurred, um, we evaluated it and then we also looked at it from a customer perspective and our technical team said you know frankly there's a the, the other charging standard was done um you know by the standards body the society of automotive engineers but when you looked at it we we thought the durability the reliability and the cost was cheaper and so you know anytime you make a decision for from a customer perspective and you're not choosing the most cost effective better solution you do that at your own peril and then for general motors um it allowed us in one you know, agreement to make, uh, starting next year, instead of having 13,000 chargers across this country available, we'll have 25,000. And so when I think about enabling people uh, and solving that issue that they have, they trust the charger's gonna be there, it was a pretty, um, you know, a, a decision that was not that hard to make and we did it pretty fast. So um, you did a Twitter Spaces with Elon Musk. Uh, are you now, I mean, you were one of the first CEOs to back off Twitter as a platform, as an advertiser, when he took over. Does this mean that you are going to be returning? You know, I was one of many. Uh, I think if you, if you go back, uh, a lot of those, it, and when you think about it, it's, it's our competitor too uh, with the information. Um, we're right in the middle right now. Very shortly, we'll be announcing a new chief marketing officer. And I think as the new leader at uh, Twitter comes on board, there's definitely a conversation to be had. But we just want to make sure, you know, as all of us, we're trying to make sure we, we spend our marketing uh, dollars wisely. And, uh, you know, from a platform, it, it became a little more complicated when a, an important competitor is running it. But uh, I think there's an opportunity, again, when our new leadership and their new leadership comes on board to have a conversation. So do you think you can trust Elon Musk as a partner? Or will you be <laughs> still viewing him as a competitor? I think he's both. I think he's a part, I think in this case, but I think in this case, it's good for, uh, it, it was a decision really that's good for everyone. And as you see more now OEMs move to adapting the standard, 
I, I think it's going to be better for the consumer. And so I think, it, you know, when you're, you're aligned that it's in both of your best interest, uh, I think we can move forward. And frankly, our team worked very seamlessly with the team at Tesla. You know, I have to say they were, they were great to work with. And then, of course, we're going to compete. Um, but I, I think a lot, in a lot of spaces now, in many industries, you compete and you partner. So we, we've, we've done part, we have a, a partnership with Honda where we're doing a lot of work with Honda. We've done partnerships in the past with Ford. So frankly, I think the industry would benefit from doing more partnerships. So uh, getting uh, back to difficult decisions, you decided to pull GM out of Europe. You've had to close, I believe, at least five assembly plants um, as you make the transition to EVs. Uh, as someone who follows you, there was obviously the, the big controversy of the Lordstown plant when then President Trump uh, criticized you personally for doing that. And um, I, I think I asked her to sell, to sell it or do something quickly. She blamed the UAW union. I don't care. I just want it open. And this just went on for weeks and months. Um, what did that feel like? And, and did you, I know you met with him, but, but just how as a CEO do you really deal with political pressure like that? Well, first of all, I never blamed it on the UAW. So just for the <laughs> record, um, uh, it just it was a vehicle that wasn't selling anymore. Uh, it, it, it was it was an older vehicle, and the way that plant had been designed, it was it was a very small vehicle that was built there, and the vehicle the plant couldn't really build the vehicles that we have today. So uh, you know, you had to face the business reality. In hindsight, um, we could have done a lot better job because we did have jobs for everyone, and I think we should have made that much more clear from the beginning. I'm not they weren't all in Lordstown, and I understand it's difficult when you have to ask people to move, but we did have good paying jobs for everyone, and many of the team in Lordstown chose to move to one of our other plants. Um, but I think the root of your question is, how does it feel? Well, it feels pretty bad. You know, when you've got the President of the United States unhappy with you, it's not a good place to be. Uh, note to self, everyone, you know, kind of so. Um, you know, we tried to we tried to work through it. Um, you know, we we did feel a commitment to the community to the community there in Lordstown. That's why that's where our first battery plant is. And uh, you know, we worked with another OEM uh, that's using the plant. Um, you know, they're having some challenges now. So we tried to do the right thing for the community. But you know, I, th I had to look back and say. I'm responsible for a lot of jobs in this country, a lot of good, especially good paying manufacturing jobs. And if I don't make the right decision to make sure the company's healthy and can compete and we can reinvest in our future, I put a lot more at risk. So as, I, as difficult as it was, and I think we could have communicated better, learned a lot, it still was the right decision for General Motors. And you know, you see us now, one of the plants we thought we were gonna close, it actually, it was Detroit, D, uh, Detroit Hamtramck, which is now factory zero. We realized with, as we pushed into our EV acceleration, we needed that plant. And so we were able to bring the, those, that workforce back. And, and so, but if you don't make good decisions for your business uh, because of legacy costs, you're going to find yourself in an uncompetitive position that puts everything at risk. And so sometimes you have to make, make difficult decisions. The stakes are just so high uh, for your success, not only for, for Michigan, uh, for the Midwest, this ecosystem uh, that really stitches together a lot of the Midwest, which is so politically important. Do you feel that pressure on your shoulder? Someone was telling me last week that you were at a breakfast and someone said, when GM gets a cold, Michigan gets a flu. I mean, you really still are such a such an enormous, um, enormously influential company in the Midwest, in the country, even though your, your actual employment is, is much lower than it used to be. Yeah, but I would still say Michigan, we have a tremendous amount of, of, uh, of, of uh, work in Michigan, where our headquarters is, for a lot of our technical talent is there. We just made a big announcement uh, for a Lake Orion plant that we're converting it to be our second truck plant. We're building a battery plant there. So we are investing big in Michigan. Uh, you know, I do feel the pressure, but I feel that in every state uh, because, I, you know, no one likes to close a plant. So we're trying to make sure as we move through this transformation, we can take everyone along that's part of the GM team right now. And we've made a lot of strategic investments already. So I'm proud of what we're doing. But again, it all starts with you have to, have to have a fundamentally healthy business to be able to, to uh, that's the best way to secure everyone's future. And that's what we're working on. Uh, but, you know, we, we um, are very proud of our footprint in Michigan. And I'm very proud of our manufacturing workforce because the
the jobs are hard and they do a great job. And frankly, they were some of the first uh, workforce back during COVID. And they learned, you know, wore the masks, followed all the different, as we learned what COVID really was. And, uh, you know, were the lifeblood of General Motors. Yeah, you can't really assemble a car remotely. No. Um, and you at some point had backtracked on one of our favorite topics, uh, return to office. Are you, are you now at three days mandatory or where do you stand on that? We're, we're asking everybody to come in in three days, but let's remember, uh, as I mentioned, our manufacturing team, our warehouse team, our design team, our R&D teams, they, come, they came back about six weeks after you know, the world shut down. They were back in the office. And so I'm grateful for all of them. For our talent that did have the flexibility, you know, we, we started with what we called work appropriately. And what we asked everyone to do is be where you can do your best work. And it slowly started to become be wherever I wanted to be. <laughs> and it just wasn't good for the business. And so, you know, we understand we're competing for that talent, especially, especially engineering and software talent. But we also felt it was very important because we need to make sure we continue to do you know, products on time that are high quality and desirable. And if you think about designing a vehicle, it's, it's the integration of 30,000 parts. And so we needed the people to be there, not, not all the time, but, uh, you know, so we asked for three days a week. Uh, you know, I, I would say we're seeing that, uh, that grow almost on a weekly basis. Uh, we also did a voluntary separation program. And as most of the people who took our voluntary separation program are moving out, you know, I think it's going to give us a better opportunity to see where we're at and we'll continue to message. But, you know, the, the great thing was, because we hired so many people during the pandemic, uh, we were like one or two weeks in and there was a young engineer who had only worked remotely and she came up to us and she said, you know, I wasn't sure I really wanted to come back, but she says, being here for two weeks, I get it. We need to be here. And, you know, we had a, a vocal minority. I mean, I, you know, read some stories on Reddit and then I stopped going there, but some of the comments, <laughs> I was like, why do you work here? You obviously are unhappy. So, you know, uh, Please make other choices. But, you know, I would say that's a very mi minor group. For the most part, people get it. So you mentioned 30,000 parts. And just at a higher level, doesn't an electric vehicle, it has fewer parts. And so that means that eventually you're going to need fewer workers. How, how does that calculus go? I mean, obviously, you're retrofitting plants. But, but uh, is that just a, I mean, obviously, you had some contentious uh, talks with the UAW, and that's going to be a real challenge. But again, as we look at, at the demographics of our, of our workforce, and some of the things that we've done is, for instance, building um, battery plants, that was work in the past that had been done by a supplier. So as we make this transformation, we're making strategic decisions of where we should vertically integrate, and that will create more jobs as well. So we think we have it balanced, um, and we're going to keep looking for ways to be more efficient. Uh, that's, you know, that's part what our manufacturing team does every year. But we've balanced it by also um, having uh, additional vertical integration. So you're pretty confident that the employment level will at least stay stable? If, and if, yeah, if we, if we um, as we continue to succeed, you know, I'm very proud, almost, I, I should say almost all of the electric vehicles, whether it's the Bolt, um, we, we have uh, long uh, waiting lists or, or interest in all of these vehicles. And so if we continue to, you know, uh, design and build compelling vehicles with high quality that people want to have, you know, that, that's what's going to be the, the, you know, opportunity to make sure we have jobs for everyone. I have a bunch more questions here, but I, no, 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 not yet, but I'm going <laughs> to open it up. Uh, I'm going to open it up in a few. I, Mary, I just have to ask you about China. It's been so much in the headlines. GM has a storied tradition in China, I think dating back to the 20s, um, where the emperor drove a Buick, and the Buick has been a big name there. Um, obviously, uh, I believe you have 50,000 employees there. There's a growing competition um, in China and also growing controversy about being in China. How are you, I guess, first of all, viewing what's happening in the market there? Your market share has declined quite significantly. And, uh, you know, are you optimistic? You know, there's a growing sense of nationalism there. People like Chinese brands. And so how are you feeling about your prospects on the in a business sense. Yeah, I, you know, first of all, we, you know, we hope that the two countries can find ways to have a level playing ground and have policies that allow, uh, you know, the right, the right interaction um, and commerce between the two countries. We have seen a shift, you know, right now there's over a hundred all EV automakers uh, in China. A hundred? Over a hundred. 
Um, capacity utilization in China is 50%. That's not sustainable. I think less than a handful are, are profitable. So there's a lot of sorting that has to happen there. We do have strong brands, uh, you know, from a premium space with Cadillac and, and Buick, and then Chev Chevrolet as well. So I, I think um, part of it is, you know, the, the, the economy is still recovering. We're, we're starting to see our EV sales now grow. I think uh, we were a little late on having some of the right EVs in country. Uh, we're doing that now. We have uh, a Buick that's launching right now that's doing very well, and our Cadillac brand in general has done well there. So, but it is a shift uh, because, uh, and so we're working through that. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever, with that many new entrants, I don't know if we'll ever be at the, you know, 14% that we were, but uh, you know, I think we can have a sizable business there in China for China from a from an autonomous perspective, from a communications perspective, and I think with just the way uh, the technology sorting out, you know, spe specifically in China, it will be China in China for China. And so, on the other side, uh, being against China has become one of the only bipartisan issues uh, united Washington right now. There's a lot of concern in the business community of what about a Russia moment, a potential invasion of Taiwan. The Journal had a story this morning that a lot of companies are kind of siloing their China business. Others are diversifying away from China. What is your reaction to that? Are you going to, are you going to try to move some of this to, to other countries? Or, or how, how, do you, how do you answer as one of the big U.S. companies in China to these concerns? Well, I, I think, as I said, you know, we hope that the two countries can find a, a, a you know, a plane where it's going to, they're going to be able to, to work. We think there's an opportunity there. But, uh, you know, what we learned through COVID, you know, over the last 20 years, the auto industry has, the, the supply chain is completely global. And unlike Russia, there's a lot of it in China. And it's not, we'll move it somewhere else because somewhere else doesn't do it. it doesn't make that component, doesn't have that technology. So it's not just moving um, your, where you, you buy your parts, it's creating a whole new uh, space. But what we also saw is, you know, with the pandemic, you need much more supply chain resiliency. You know, some of the single sourcing or having everything come from one place is just not good business. And so we're working on supply chain resiliency. Uh, but, you know, I think the situation is very different than Russia. And that's not just for the auto industry, that's for several industries. It's for pharma. Uh, many, many industries have that kind of dependence. And it goes both ways. So I think um, I, I, uh, I've had the opportunity to speak to several members of, of the administration and Congress. It just, you know, has to be done in a way that I, it would have, a, I think, a, a very dramatically negative impact for both economies if it's if what the new normal is isn't done with a lot of thought. Will your back battery factories in the U.S. help you help you? lessen your sourcing on China? For, for but that was already a decision. You know, we, we started building um, our plant in Ohio. We have a, a, a strategic joint venture with LG Energy Solutions, which is a Korean company. That was long underway before all of COVID and supply chain. So we were already doing that because what's be kind of for us, in addition to going through the pandemic and then the semiconductor shortage and then just supply base challenges, one of our biggest issues right now is logistics. Uh, you know, I have, I have vehicles built that I can't get on rail, truck or rail to get where it needs to go. And so when you look at the logistics component, you know, especially for big components, you need to build them much closer to where you're going to assemble them. So you are chair of the Business Roundtable, which is an incredibly influential group of CEOs. And in 2019, about 200 CEOs signed a letter that was really like a seismic shift in American business, stating, stating that the shareholder, the interests of shareholders were no longer the primary interest of companies and that all stakeholders, whether it be su suppliers, employees, communities, and it was really seen as a, as a turning point in business. There's been, it feels like a reconsideration of that. There's this anti-woke movement. There's a sense that, that actually shareholder value should be the primary uh, uh, interest of companies. Where is that discussion? And as you as leader, like what, is, what are you hearing and where do you think it should go? Well, I think the, the seismic shift that was written about it was it kind of wasn't really accurate. Because, you know, when we as a, as a group of CEOs, and I wasn't leading BRT at that time, but as we talked about it, you know, you step back and is if, if you're not doing the right thing for your employees, you're not doing the, treating your suppliers well, for us it's our dealers, our unions, and the communities we live and work, 
um, it's not going to turn out well for the shareholders. The way we looked at it is, and I think, and I've talked to a lot of our, our, you know, our long shareholders who, of course, understand if you do the right thing for the, the constituencies and you have good relationships, good partnerships, it's going to be better for the company and therefore better for the shareholder. So I think it was seen as the seismic shift that really was what good business was already doing. Um, and and I, I, it wasn't attached to what now is termed woke. It was really just, you know, doing the right thing for all the people you need to have a successful business. And, um, and so that's the way I looked at it. Uh, and I think most of the members of the BRT look at it the same way today. So, so you don't think there's really any retrenchment then? I mean, there's talk about DEI and companies, and there's a reality actually that it feels like a lot of companies are stepping back from those ambitious goals just a couple years ago. Stakeholder activism is something that's actively being debated. Well, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I think some things on the extremes on both sides are being misinterpreted and frankly leveraged for not what their intent was at all. I mean, at General Motors, we want to be the most inclusive company in the world. But when I talk to our employees about it, I say, I, I literally say, how many people have been at work and have felt and haven't felt valued or felt ignored? And I raise my hand and I say, how did that feel? And then they raise their hand. I'll be like, it felt pretty bad, right? I go, well, why would we want anyone to feel that way? You know, if we want to get, um, you know, have everybody engaged doing their very best work, being their true self at work so they, they, they can do their best work, we've got to be, have a, a culture at General Motors that respects differences. I'm not, asking, I'm not asking everybody to agree on everything. I'm asking them to have enough respect for each other, to value each other and, re, and respect the differences. And, you know, when I, when I talk to employees about this, they say, yeah, I, that's right. No one wants to feel bad at work. Everybody wants to feel like they're valued, that their, their work is recognized. And so that's what we're working on. And, and to have tolerance for the fact that we don't agree on everything. Because, no, I mean, if you put 10 people in a room, they're not going to agree on everything. So, you know, I, I think, again, inclusion is just respecting differences. So as chair of BRT, you don't think there's going to be like an amend a, a different letter or response or a revision of that original letter from now, 2019. Again, because it was, again, I think we all agreed it was when you have the right relationships and think through your shareholder, your, your stakeholders, it's doing the right thing for your shareholders. What is it like just taking a step back from all this to be a CEO in just this politically charged environment where it feels like any decision you make is, is, is going to be viewed by the extremes, but also just under such a microscope. You look at what's happening with Disney and so many Bud Light, so many companies out there. You know, at, at General Motors, we try to really stay focused on what's, what's core to our business, what's important to our business, what do we have enough knowledge on to, to, to take, you know, to, to take a position on, and then we also are rooted in our values, our core values of the company. And so a lot of times when we talk about something, we're not talking about the issue that's the issue of that day, we're talking about what does it mean and what are, what is it, how does it relate to the values of General Motors? Because we, be we can all be different and have different views, but we all do need to live the values of the company. And so that's how we, how we frame it and look at it and uh, you know, try to live that every day and, and you know, we're, I think if we do that, we can, we can explain why we did what we did. And again, we want to be inclusive. We don't want to make decisions for yeah, everyone else. We, we uh, enjoy a very diverse customer base right now uh, because we deliver a, a product they want to buy with high quality and with a brand that they know they can trust. We want to continue to do that. So one more question before I open it up. Uh, you sit on the board of Disney, and um, obviously Bob, Bob Iger has come back. Succession is a, is a, is a primary function of a board. Um, what is your view on that, both as a CEO and a board member where succession has um, obviously been such a big topic? Uh, what, is the, what is the right role for a CEO in terms of, in terms of one's own successor? Well, I think it's important. Um, that uh, for, for a board, I think it's one of their most important jobs. And I also think it's a important, you know, at every level, I always, you know, whether you're a first line manager all the way to a CEO, you know, part of your role should be developing the talent um, that could take your position. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a role. I mean, I think to think um, in, in any of you that run a business, to think that you're going to get it 100% right in every, you know, position you promote or hire into, um, you know, so I think when you realize you've got to make a change, you've got to make a change. And I'm a huge Bob Iger fan. I think he's, you know, what he's accomplished at Disney, and I think he's the right person for, for Disney right now in the transformation that that industry is going through.
So you've been in this seat almost 10 years. I don't get any sense you're going anywhere anytime fast. Well, obviously, I serve at the pleasure of the board, so it's not my decision, it's theirs. But, uh, you know, I, this is the most exciting time in this industry, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm humbled to be able to lead the General Motors team. They're so talented and they're so dedicated, and, you know, uh, we have more to do to, you know, we're, I think because of General Motors' history, we're not like a startup that's given the benefit of the doubt. We're a show-me company, and I'm intent on showing with our EVs, with a autonomous that we didn't get a chance to talk to because cruise, you know, AV is here right now. And uh, it, if you've had a chance to take a ride in one of our cruise vehicles, it, there's no driver. You know, so when I, a lot of times when people say, oh, I've, I've, I've been in an autonomous vehicle, unless you've been in a vehicle that there's no one in the driver's seat, you really haven't experienced level four autonomy. And I have several times. So I'm, I think cruise, the growth opportunity we have there is tremendous. And then what we can do with software to create a, a customer experience that people can't even imagine today. I'm super excited. So one last beat on cruise. You bought it in 2016. Uber, a lot of others have backed away from autonomous driving, but you're, I guess you're fully autonomous in San Francisco and on we, the verge in five others? Yeah, we're, we're, we're running 24-7 uh, in the 7x7 of, of San Francisco. We're expanding in Phoenix. We're expanding in Austin, which we were able to get running, uh, get up and running in, in three months at the end of last year. We just announced uh, Houston and Dallas, so uh, there'll be more to come. And, uh, you know, again, once you have an opportunity to ride in a, an autonomous vehicle, uh, at least the people who have ridden cruise vehicles, they are very likely to, they say they're very likely to take a ride again. I think it'd be even higher if it wasn't for the fact we're not everywhere yet, so we don't have every one of their use cases. And, you know, you're, you're, you're being the, the, the ride is incredible. I know all of you have probably been in a ride share, and sometimes that's a little bit of a harrowing experience, depending on the capability of the driver. This is a, the, the autonomous technology pays attention all the time, knows all the traffic safety rules, they know all the restrictions, um, and it, it's just a very different ride that gives you confidence. You know, people are like, first, like they get in and they're like, oh my gosh, and then like two minutes in, they're like, okay, yeah, this is fine. I mean, it, it's that fast that people get get confidence in the technology. And we've done a lot of work with Cruz. I'm so proud of the Cruz team. So despite some high profile accidents, particularly from a competitor, you're fully confident in the safety of, of safety gates what we do at Cruise. And we've leveraged not only the knowledge of, uh, you know, Gil West is our COO. He uh, came, he was the COO of Delta before, and so very much understands uh, the safety management systems that, that the airline industry use. We know the safety systems that we, we use, and that knowledge together and working with our regulators, so every step of the way they know what we're doing and they know the data that we have backing up the decisions that we make, safety has and always will be a gating factor for us. Okay, I am going to open it up to questions. Um, there are, uh, I promised I would, and we still have a few minutes. Um, there are microphones, so could you please, um, there's one right up in the front here. Sorry to make it hard for the first. If you could maybe state your name. and Sure, absolutely. Found. My name is Chris Gates, and thank you both for doing this. And it's a question actually for both of you, because you've each, you as journalists, Rebecca and Mary, of course, running this iconic business, have got kind of a relationship with each other day to day. Rebecca, how do you find something new to say about General Motors ongoingly? I guess I'll go first. I, I'm now president of NBC News, so I don't, I'm not actually the reporter covering General Motors any longer. I did that a number of years ago, but I, I, I have to say that being a reporter just has informed me of stories that I'm interested in as an editor. And you don't want to be that annoying editor who's always assigning specific things, but, but I do uh, believe in the value of covering the country from the ground up and, and, and certainly have had a front row seat to the importance of, of, a, of a company like General Motors. And I mean, you and I have known each other for a long time and you've kind of tracked the success in all of your roles, uh, starting with a reporter and, and all the way through what we're doing. So, you know, I think it's, I always enjoy talking to Rebecca because you have tremendous knowledge about our business and about the company. Thank you, appreciate that. Hi, yeah, my name is Gary Lauder um, and my wife tells me to stand up, so I listen. Um, <laughs> Uh, so in 2006, uh, the documentary Who Killed the Electric Car came out long prior to your being CEO. But what's your take on that? Because it was, it's an interesting object lesson in government trying to force an industry to do something that it didn't, didn't otherwise want to do. 
but it was in its interest, as we know in retrospect. Thanks. Great, sure. Well, Gary and I went to uh, Stanford Business School together, so hi to a classmate. Um, no, you know, if I, if I look back uh, at General Motors, you know, we were first with EV1. Uh, the technology really wasn't mature enough at that time. It was more than 20 years ago. Uh, we never stopped working on electric vehicles. And in 2010, that was the Volt, which was an extended range electric vehicle. You know, I, I would say when people ask me if I could push a button and do something over, I would have I done EVs faster, um, uh, you know, but I am where I am and we're going as fast as we can. And I think we've got a, a winning portfolio. Customers give us that uh, uh, vote of confidence every day, but I wish we would have um, continued to pioneer what we did. Uh, but of course, during that period of time, General Motors had a lot of other challenges. Uh, but again, you know, back even in the mid, even while we were going through the, you know, the restructuring in the 08, 09 timeframe in 2010 is when the Volt came out. So we remain committed. I just, uh, you know, again, I think it's something uh, we're working as quick as we can to accelerate. And we've been doing that for the last now six years. Questions? We've got an active row back there. <laughs> Hi, Ms. Barra. My name is Duthi, and I'm actually from Michigan. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, and I'm 17 years old here to represent the Bezos Scholars who are being funded by the Bezos Family Foundation to come and attend the Aspen Ideas Festival. Um, my father and many of my family friends actually have worked with GM or have worked with you before, and um, my father, he no longer works there, but he did mention to me when I told him that Mary Barra was coming, he's like, <laughs> I have never felt more committed and a part of a family and working to a project. And he says that there's such a family feeling and a sense of purpose in what you're doing. And I'm just wondering, how do you establish that sense of community within the, your talents that you work with? And just how do you create that family feeling? Well, thank you very much for the question. And you can call me Mary. <laughs> and um, I, uh, you know, again, I think it's, it's a fundamental of valuing everybody that works for General Motors and knowing they can make a choice to work wherever they'd like and respecting that the work they do. So, um, you know, I think it starts at that core level and that's what we try to make sure, you know, we have uh, em employee behaviors where we ask everyone to be focused on the customer, to be bold, to look ahead. And, you know, we, we talk about uh, the values and how we want to win. So I think it's, and then we communicate and communicate and communicate so people understand what we're doing and why. So I think those are just a few. Okay, one more question right there. Good morning. I have a governance question and a management question for you this morning. The governance question comes from a story I heard about uh, Steve Jobs that at one point before the first iPhone came out, he was vacillating about whether to include apps. Sounds incredible sitting here today. And so my question, um, the governance question is, what role did your board, and, and, and his board convinced him to do it. That was the punchline I left out. So what role did your board play in your decision to transition to all electric vehicles by 2035? And the management question is, are you doing like a skunk works kind of thing on the electric vehicle side where you're saying, okay, this is so different than our historic business. We're going to put a group all the way off to the side. We're not going to leverage our existing processes, people, systems, and should we do it separately? Or are you doing it as an integrated part of your existing business today? So the first question with uh, the board, um, I have a fabulous board of people who have just tremendous experience in business. And so uh, they do oversee the strategy of the company. But I, I, when I talk to the board, I always say, like, we don't just come with a decision with a bow wrapped around it and nicely. I would say we're going to take you on the journey. And so, you know, as we learn, because then I get the benefit of their knowledge at every step, uh, major milestone that helps us make better decisions. So our board is very involved in um, helping and gaining insights into, you know, strengthening the strategy that we put in front of them. As it relates to the transition to EVs, I'd actually say we've done both. You know, for instance, uh, we had a dedicated team working on the Bolt, a dedicated team working on the Hummer. And the Hummer was a vehicle because of the work we'd done on the LTM platform. We did that vehicle in about half the time of, and it's really changed the way we develop vehicles. And we put a dedicated team and we empowered them to say, go fast. You can't follow all of our normal processes or you won't make the time, yet we're not going to compromise safety or quality. So, and, and they you know, just uh, did tremendous work. And so then we institutionalize that and that becomes the process that we use. And so I would say it's kind of iterative. Um, we also have a dedicated team for all of the EV products. They're all, they all have their own chief engineers and actually there's a, a vice president who has all EV products. So we're trying to get the best of both worlds because when you think about it from an EV perspective, what's different is the propulsion system. 
But the seats, whether the infotainment is the same, whether it's regardless of how the vehicle is propelled. So we're trying to leverage what's common so we can go fast and not have du duplicate costs. But then in the areas that are all new, empower the teams to, to innovate. We have time for one more question. You've been patient right up here. Hi, Joan Michelson, Electric Ladies Podcast. Um, I have interviewed two of your executives, Kristen Seaman and Telva Magruder, and I look forward to interviewing you as well. Um, I wanted to ask you about the SEC rule, uh, climate risk disclosure rules that are coming out. Um, you obviously have been ahead of the curve on the transition to climate-friendly business. And the, uh, but you wrote, a, you signed a letter with a, I don't know, I guess it was a couple hundred CEOs pushing back on the proposed climate rules that came out. And there's obviously a lot of CEOs and business leaders in this audience who also will have to deal with those rules on some level. So in order to transition to a clean energy economy, what is it in those rules that you would change? What do you suggest is left in it? What's your problem with them? If you can talk a little bit about how uh, the SEC's rules would impact your business and how you think about them. Well, and, and I think where you're seeing the most pushback for CEOs, and I want to speak for them, so um, there's literally things that you're being asked from an SEC disclosure perspective that carry a, 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 you know, a, a different standard from an audit ability perspective that we don't have and we can't, we don't know. So it's pretty hard to put out find our statements that are under, you know, that kind of disclosure from an SEC perspective when you literally are saying, I, I can't get the data to do it. So that's one of our big issues. It's kind of a chicken and the egg situation. Um, and obviously, you know, I think every company takes complying with the SEC very seriously. And so when we sit there and say, okay, there's, there's provisions in the new, uh, the draft, uh, um, written, I guess, it's not legislation, but rulemaking that we literally don't know how to do, you know, we're, we're raising the, the concern flag. And Mary, lastly, before we wrap up, I just uh, can't help but ask, what would your advice be to a young man or woman who's starting out in business today um, uh, or considering the car industry? What, what is the big thing that you think that uh, as an ambitious young person, you need to remember working your way up? Well, I, I would say three things. One, find your passion because then, you know, it's still going to be work. I, I don't want to say it's not work, but find your passion so you, you know, you feel um, it's aligned with what, what is important to you. Second is do every job like you're going to do it for the rest of your life. Don't rent a job. You know, when you see so many people, when I talk to people and they're already more focused on their next job than the job they're doing, they usually don't do well. So invest in your job. Do it like you're going to own it. That's when you're going to make it better. You're going to, I mean, no one, no one washes a rent a car. So don't rent your job, own it. <laughs> and then, then lastly, work hard, because there's really no substitute for hard work. And I learned that from my parents who grew up in the Depression era. I'd like you to join me in thanking Mary for an incredible conversation. Mary Barra is chair and CEO of General Motors. Barra began her career with GM in 1980 as a General Motors Institute co-op student at the Pontiac Motor Division. The chair and founding member of GM's Inclusion Advisory Board, she serves on the boards of Walt Disney Company, Duke University, and the Detroit Economic Club. Rebecca Blumenstein is president of editorial at NBC News. Prior to this, she was Deputy Managing Editor of the New York Times, and before that, Deputy Editor-in-Chief of the Wall Street Journal. Blumenstein is also a 2009 Aspen Institute Henry Crown Fellow. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.